You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to repent and see your salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, between the uh, era of the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, and the beginning of the New Testament, a 400-year time period had spanned. There's 400 years between the end of Malachi and also um, roughly the histories and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah to when the Gospels pick up with the stories that you have at the beginning of Matthew and Luke. And God's final word uh, through Malachi's uh, prophecy were this. These are the final words in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so the idea was that either Elijah himself, um, the uh, foremost uh, famous prophet of the Old Testament, would, would uh, come or a prophet like Elijah uh, would come uh, one day in the future. And probably they were thinking he would come much sooner than 400 years, but that was the idea. And that this prophet would proclaim the message of the coming of the Lord himself uh, to, to God's people. And the prophet would uh, lead people to repentance, uh, which means the idea of repentance is, uh, is a turning away, a turning away from any sort of false god, whatever it is, whether it's literal or an idea or stuff, a turning away from the things uh, that we uh, falsely worship, to turn away from those things and to turn toward uh, the one true God. And that this repentance, as Malachi explains, Uh, as God explains through Malachi, uh, would bear fruit. And the type of fruit that it would bear is restored relationships. That's the business about the turning of the children, uh, the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. That through repentance, uh, one of the fruits that would come is a restoration of relationships. So for uh, 400 years, the Jewish people were left in uh, expectation and not just expectation, they're left in expectation in a very tumultuous time. It's a, those 400 years are, uh, are a real rough time for, for the Jewish people uh, in, uh, in Judah. And uh, they, so there they are, and they know the promises of their God uh, from prophets like Malachi, and they expect a Messiah to come and to deliver them from foreign rule. They're not entirely sovereign. I mean, they're a lot like the Indian tribes are here in the United States, where there's sort of a, a sort of a, a half-baked notion of sovereignty. That's what it was like uh, for the Jewish people in Judah and Judea during these 400 years. After the Persians ruled the Jewish people and let them return to Jerusalem, their region was eventually conquered by Alexander the Great and the Greeks, making the area uh, Greek-speaking and influenced by Greek culture. Many even tried to sort of um, to merge Judaism with Greek philosophy, and this led to some internal conflicts within the Jewish population, people who disagreed with that and people who wanted to go in certain directions. I'm, you know, I'm painting real broad strokes here, but you know, these types of things were happening. It was more complex than that even. Uh, So you have the internal conflict amongst the Jews uh, because of this pressure that's coming from the Greek culture. 
And later this uh, led even to persecution and a guerrilla uprising. It's kind of a cool story. That's what the, the, the story behind Han- Hanukkah is about, is the, the uh, Maccabean uh, revolt. That's what's celebrated. But this revolt, even though they won, uh, would lead to even more conflict amongst the Jews. And finally, finally, the Romans take over, just decades before uh, the New Testament begins. And Rome makes a guy named Herod the Great, uh, uh, the uh, Roman uh, king of Judea. He's, he's a Jewish man, but they make him a sort of client king, as it's called, a puppet king in that region. And so although he's Jewish and he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, he is a, a terrible man. He's an egotistical despot. And, uh, I mean, including having some of his wives and own children uh, executed. I mean, it's a lot like the Tudors. I mean, think Henry VIII, but, in, uh, but you know, 2,000 years before in the Palestinian region. Uh, and he has, so he has a long list of personal vices. And uh, his son, Herod Antipas, becomes the, the king after him uh, during uh, the time when John the Baptist begins his ministry. And he's, he's not much better than Herod the Great because f- if you follow me, he married his niece, who is also his other brother's sister. <laughs> Hashtag it's complicated. Um, it's on this scene that John the Baptist enters. With all this going on, in the midst of all this complex history that John the Baptist uh, comes, when the Jews are subject to foreign rule and all these various uh, complicated uh, cultural influences around them, the religion has been confused by many of these factors. They've been expecting God to deliver them uh, from these foreigners by a Messiah for, for many hundreds of years. And as far as anyone can tell, God hasn't even spoken to them through a prophet for all of these uh, four centuries. And so you can imagine the uncertainty and confusion of a lot of the, the Jewish people at this time, that the Jewish religion uh, suffered and it was, it was muddled by all these uh, choices and influences surrounding them. Either it saw I- internal factions that split into all these different people you hear about in the New Testament, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Essenes, and probably even more than that. There's all these internal uh, sects Uh, amongst the uh, Jewish people, or on the other hand, it was watered down and uh, distorted by by Greek and Roman culture, uh, that that, uh, these forces that are surrounding them. In the midst of all this history, we read at the beginning, toward the beginning of Luke's gospel in the third chapter, and Mark's pronunciations are better than mine because he's a scholar in this area, but I'm going to read this again. In the fifteenth year of the region of, uh, uh, in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Itria, and Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So there are three things. Uh, just really quickly that I want to say about these two verses. Uh, First of all, Luke gives us a a glimpse into all those cultural influences that I've just outlined. 
Do you see them all? You have um, both Jewish and uh, Roman uh, forces at play here that he's outlining people of power. Uh, to give you a taste of what all is going on in the political and religion scene around them. He also mentions these names to place these events in actual history. That that's the way they would have dated things. You know, about this time when these people were in charge, these things happened. They're not just timeless, eternal truths that are out there in the ether for you to grab onto. But he's saying, at this precise date, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. After 400 years, uh, the word of God comes to a prophet uh, to uh, prepare the people of the coming of the Messiah. And Luke, in particular, is, is real good about this because he had a very analytical mind. You might remember from chapter 1, he says uh, to the man he's writing to or his audience, he says, I'm going to give you an orderly account. Uh, that he's going to give a, a precise history. And so that's why all these names are listed in addition to giving you a glimpse into what's going on in the, in the scene in history at the time. And, he, and he, as I said, he also, the third thing I want to say is he's explaining that the word of God has come uh, for the first time in 400 years to a prophet who is John, the son of Zechariah, uh, the, the prophet that Malachi uh, foretold, and he comes to preach a message of repentance to the Jews a message of repentance to the Jewish people to turn away from their uh, confused and distorted religion, to turn away from the things they're looking to for hope, and to return to a complete devotion to their true God, to turn away from all that, all that's muddling and distorting and leading astray, and to turn toward the one true God. And he's doing this to prepare the way of the coming of the uh, true Messiah, the Deliverer, God's anointed one, the one who will bring them the salvation that they're longing for. But this Messiah will look nothing like what they expected, and his salvation will also uh, far surpass their expectations. Well, I'm convinced that we live in a time in history that is a lot like the beginning of the New Testament. I'm convinced that you and I, in 2000, the end of 2018, going into 2019, here in the United States, live in a time in history that's a lot like the beginning of the New Testament. Just as God left the Jews with promises of the coming of the Lord, so too did uh, Jesus himself and the apostles promise the return of the Lord. But instead of 400 years of patiently waiting, we've been waiting for 2,000 years. Just as they had been waiting for the fulfilled promises for 400 years, we've been waiting for 2,000 years. And the way that often Jesus and Paul and the other apostles talk about it, you get the sense that the Lord's coming like tomorrow. <laughs> but it's been 2,000 stinking years. And meanwhile, Christianity has both grown in numbers of uh, adherents. You know, thank God for those 2,000 years because we've had all that time to, what is the figure now? It's like 2 billion uh, Christian adherents uh, around the world uh, uh, today. Uh, but unfortunately, this means that Christianity has also grown in confusion. That in those 2,000 years, uh, uh, the confusion has happened just as we see with the Jewish religion uh, during that sort of time between the Testaments, both internally uh, in terms of a growing number of factions. I mean, look at all the denominations we have. There are almost as many denominations as there are Christians. 
Um, and, and, and not just the internal confusion, but the external forces that also affect us and distort our understanding of uh, Christianity that uh, confuses us and causes us to forget the object, uh, the sole object of our future hope and expectation. Our existence as Americans is one of sort of a la carte consumerism. You know, if you've got a new interest, if you take up a new, um, like, hobby, just try, have you done this before in your adulthood, try to take up a new hobby and go online, and you want to know, you want to know, like, say, uh, say you want to become a cyclist, right, and you want to know what bike to ride, you know, good luck, because everybody's going to have an opinion. And if you go to a different store, they're going to give a different opinion. You go online, you're just going to be lost. Um, that's what our lives are like all, everywhere and all the time. I and mean, our power is out this morning. And I said, let's go out to a restaurant afterwards. Well, which one? You know, I mean, that's just the way our lives are. It's this a la carte uh, experience of picking and choosing and consuming. We're presented with so many choices to solve all of our problems, including finding uh, meaning and a sense of security. One of the biggest struggles in my life for the past several years has uh, been dealing with this, has been uh, uh, um, with uh, dealing with contemporary forms of, of what you might call idolatry, which is worshiping uh, false gods, uh, worshiping things that are not uh, the one true God. Uh, the most difficult thing about being a Christian in American society might be that we actually worship ideas and not physical um, false gods and uh, necessarily stuff, although we do that. But one of the most difficult things about being a Christian in the United States is that we uh, worship ideas and we've become uh, uh, syncretists with them. You know what a syncretist is? is with people who try to merge religions together. A few weeks ago, we had a guy here, I think he preached at this service, Steve Rockwell from uh, South Africa. He spoke in the dean's class. Did any of you go to that? He told the story about how in um, one of the problems in Africa, uh, for example, is they have a problem, they struggle with syncretism. But people might want to take their, um, their uh, tribal religions and merge it together with Christianity when they form uh, new churches and, and become Christians. So, for example, you can go to a church there and you might go up and receive communion or you can turn to the right and go see a shaman and, uh, and, have, a, and have a witch doctor pray with you. And we kind of gasp at that. But we've got our own versions. We've got our own versions of turning to the left or the right and seeing our own versions of the witch doctor, sometimes even in the church building. Um, you know, I mean, we've got our own versions of these things, and we can see that when we look to the African Christianity, but it's so much more difficult when we're looking at, at ourselves. I read, a, I was reading a book a while back um, that uh, that confronted me with one of the idols in our family a lot like this, and it, it really convicted me and made me uncomfortable. I'm just going to read you a passage from this book um, that I read a couple years ago. Ask parents what they want most for their children, and you will likely get the same answer whether they are Christians or garden variety unbelievers. They will likely say, I want my children to get a good education. In fact, that's exactly what George Barna found when he interviewed Christians and non-Christian parents. The number one goal they had for their children was that they would get a good education. 
I'm not suggesting there is anything wrong with emphasizing education for our children. On the contrary, my wife and I are fanatics when it comes to our children's education. However, our children's education is not our primary goal. Our primary goal is for, our for our children is that they walk with the Lord. Unfortunately, the aforementioned study found that only half as many parents, whether Christian or not, considered their children's having a relationship with Christ as important as their child's education. The world's limited view of life says that the most important thing we can do is get good grades and go to good, read, reputable, and high-profile college, uh, get out of school and get a good job so we can make more money than our mom and dad did. What a limited view of what's really important! Exclamation point. Uh, there is more to life than making the grade. Well, I wonder for you, it's, it's probably not that. You know, this, this is something that convicted me to, to take a look at what was going on in our family when I read this. But I wonder if there's one clear thing in, in your life that has become a, a similar sort of uh, false idol. It might even be something that's a value, like education here, that we're, we're somehow becoming syncretists with and merging it even sometimes into our Christianity. I wonder if there's something like this for you. There might be um, several things that are kind of uh, difficult to untangle. And they, uh, they, they might, as I said, be things that, that we even uh, value. They're a good thing, but the problem is that we've uh, turned them into a primary thing, as this author explains. We're going through a, a catechism with our kids at home that's like a, a, you know, where you read a question and they memorize the response back. And the one, one of the ones I love the best is the one about idolatry because it's real simple. It's easy to remember. And you ask, what is idolatry? And the kids say back, uh, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. And those created things might be good things, but they're not God. They're not Jesus. They're not the creator. They're not the, the, um, the thing that we ought to be uh, worshiping. They, they, they shouldn't be the primary thing in our lives. So I invite you to, to identify just one thing. Just one thing. And you probably know what it is in your life and be clear about it and to come to grips with it and to recognize it as an idol. As an idol that's in the, the way of your relationship with God. Um, because you and God and this idea are in a bit of a love triangle. Do you know what a love triangle is? You know when there are like three parties? You know what happens with the love triangle? Eventually, the th a third party has to go. That two of the people are going to go off into the sunset and have a relationship, Right? Um, the, the three can't stay together. It just doesn't work. The chemistry isn't right. But when we have an idol that we put before God, we've, we've, we've found ourselves in a sort of love triangle uh, with God and us and this thing. Uh, and so here are your choices. Either you and God will carry on together in a relationship or you and this thing will carry on in a relationship and leave uh, God behind and carry on in a relationship where you're treating it like God. It might be a good thing, remember, but not a primary thing. Just as John the Baptist and Malachi told the Jews, I say to you to repent, to turn away from worshiping that thing or those things and turn to the true God. 
And the fruit of repentance is not just right relationship with God. As Malachi said, repentance leads to restoration. This is because our idolatry leads to utter destruction. Chances are you're turning uh, your back on this third party and the love triangle is going to hurt. It's not easy. When mountains are made low and rough places are made level, there is pain. It can almost feel like re-breaking a broken bone to set it in the right place. But when the path is made straight to the true God, then and only then will you see the salvation of God and his name is Jesus Christ our Lord. And so repent and believe in the gospel that the awesome day of the Lord has come and will come. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.